We're in uh, the book of Hebrews this morning. Uh, Josh read for us uh, a passage out of chapter 10. I'm looking forward to thinking about this passage with you. Our, our focus this morning is really going to be uh, on the last part of that passage, which he read. Although I want to treat it a little bit differently, maybe than we ordinarily would. Our process uh, would ordinarily be that we would outline those verses. We would explain words in those verses. We would illustrate some of those concepts and then and then we would make application of it. But I want to do something a little bit different this morning because I want us to hear these verses, which would probably be somewhat familiar verses to us uh, from this passage. Uh, I want us to hear them a little bit differently. I think preaching in this setting, in other words, not on a regular basis, is always difficult because you have to choose a passage and then you know you're dropping into a passage that generally people haven't probably been spending a lot of time with. Um, and so we're, we're at a disadvantage because we don't necessarily have a context built around this passage to hear it in. That's why our study in Revelation has been so rewarding because we've been able to walk through chapter by chapter pretty much week by week um, that book. And so we're able to pull from things we've heard in the past well, a couple weeks anyway, and uh, other things that we've been reading and thinking about in, in that book. When we drop into this passage this morning, it may be somewhat familiar to us, but it's not a passage that we've probably spent a lot of time with. Uh, maybe it's been a while since you even read through this passage. So what I want us to do is really try to relocate this again as to where this passage fits in the book. This is an applicational passage, uh, verses 19 through 25. The writer of the Hebrews is coming to the end of an argument that he's been making. It's a rather extended argument. And he's, he's uh, kind of drawing it together and saying, now because of this, this is what I want you to do. It actually is a, it's a pretty neat passage because it lays out uh, pretty clearly. You begin in verse 19, you can see that the writer is going to make two summative type statements. In other words, based on all this argument that I presented, then because of that, he says, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, and he goes on to talk about that. And then in verse 21, he says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, so he's referring back to everything that he's been talking about, and he's saying, since these things are true, then he makes his application. It's not really very complex. It's actually pretty simple, and it lays right on the surface here. We can see it, right? He says, beginning in verse 22, let us draw near. So based on everything that I have said so far, with regards to the subject I'm dealing with, the proper response is, first of all, draw near. And then you notice he says down in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And so the second thing is we're to, we're to hold fast to something that he has been explaining to us in this passage. 
And then thirdly, he says, let us uh, consider in verse 24 and let us consider how to stir up one another. So three, three fairly straightforward applications based on what he has said. The thing is that sometimes as we read these, we may tend to read them in light of um, maybe more of a devotional type reading. And in devotional reading of Scripture, which is a, which is a necessary reading of Scripture, but, but oftentimes in devotional reading of Scripture, what we do is we begin with our interpretation based on our current situation. So as I read through this, I might be thinking, let us draw nigh. Oh, yeah. You know what? I, my heart's maybe been a little cold towards the Lord, or I've been a little bit distracted in my walk with him. Um, you know, I, it would really be good for me. I need to draw nigh to the Lord. And then I might begin to think about how I would go about doing that. And then I might read in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And I would think, you know what, my hope is based on the promises of God, and therefore I need to, I need to reacquaint myself with some of those promises. I need, to, I need to dig into those promises. I need to think more about them. And so, so then I might make this decision in my devotional reading. I need to read through the Psalms again, right? Because the Psalms are loaded with those kinds of promises. And, and again, I'm not, please understand, not trying to speak pejoratively about that type of reading, but... But we have to be careful sometimes. And then I might go to that 22nd or 20th, uh, 4th verse, and it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another. And, and, you know, I might begin to think, you know, it's been a while since I've really maybe touched a life here uh, in this assembly. And, you know, I really should make an effort to get with so-and-so and, and spend some time with them. That would be good. You know what, there would be nothing wrong necessarily with my reading of that scripture. We all read scripture at a devotional level, and it needs to be read at that level. But I want to encourage you to think about this, that beyond the devotional level of reading, we also need to understand the scriptures and read them from a theological understanding. In other words, I need to step back and not allow my current situation to be my first understanding of Scripture, but rather to allow the message that God was trying to communicate through His Spirit to be that first message. It's like a, it's like a broadening of our perspective. It's like, a, it's like a, a broadening of the view from which we see this particular passage, and that's really important. I can illustrate it maybe this way. When, I, uh, when, when Janie and I first moved to Colorado, well, actually, we'd been in Colorado. We moved away. We were in uh, just outside of Brevard, North Carolina, and um, we were at the Wilds camp, and the Wilds started a camp here, and they asked if we would be the director, and I said, yeah, sure, I'd be glad to do that. And, and so in uh, February of uh, 1987, we moved to Colorado, to the high country of Colorado. We were at the foot of Muddy uh, Pass Lake, Rabbit Ears Pass, uh, a little over 9,000 feet, two and a half miles off of Highway 40. We had just driven through about 
uh, probably about uh, 45 minutes ago, we'd driven through that great booming town of Kremling, Colorado, which we knew we could hardly wait to get back and explore. It would take us probably all about 10 minutes to do so. We drove into the campsite, and as we got there, we realized that there was already <clears throat> about 500 inches of snow on the ground. It was one road in, and if you've ever been up there, there's a sweeping curve about halfway up before you go past some horse stables. That sweeping curve had drifted. There was a 30-foot drift of snow on that corner. We then drove around, and you come to this place where you reach the height of, of the road, and then you can look out over the lake and everything. It's beautiful, and we drove down into the, into the campsite. There was only enough room in the parking lot for about three cars to be parked. Everything else was just piled up with snow. In fact, the lodge was, had almost disappeared because there had been so much snow and they had piled so much snow in the front lawn of the lodge that you could actually ride a snowmobile from the front lawn right up to the peak of the roof. It was just, it was an unusual uh, winter wonderland for sure. And when we got there, I'm thinking, okay, this is where we live. You know, for the next, for the next four to five months, we knew nothing about that campsite. In fact, all we could do, we drove in one road, we drove out, we came in, we made our little way on these paths, cut through the snow to get to the lodge and back to our lodging, and that was about it. We'd drive into Steamboat, nothing to be seen. Everything was piled up with snow. And, you know, after a while, it's kind of like, I can't wait for this snow to go away so that I can really see what this place looks like. Where does it sit in relationship to all these other things that I'm seeing? And then uh, one night, one week during the summer, a guy came to visit who had a small airplane. He said, hey, would you like to fly over the campsite? I said, man, I would love to fly over this campsite. I would love to see how it sits in relationship to everything else that's around it. And, you know, when we got up in that plane and began to fly over that campsite, it was like, oh, that's what it's all about. That's why that road makes that bend and why we make that curve. And hey, and look, there's a lake actually right there. Didn't know that. I thought that was just an open field with snow on it. It was actually a lake. But you know, when I got that perspective, it changed everything about my understanding of that place. And this morning, what I want us to do is see if in the next few minutes that we have together, if we can't reorient maybe even clarify and for certain amplify what this applicational section is really about in this book. What is it that the writer of the Hebrews is saying to these people and why is he saying it to them and how is he saying it to them? And so I want us to do two things. I want us to look, first of all, at the broad view of this, of this text. And the broad view of this text has to do with the purpose of the book. What was Hebrews all about? Why is this book in our Bibles and what was its message? Well, let me try to summarize in just a, a few uh, minutes here what I think this book is all about. The book of Hebrews is actually written, it carries the name Hebrews, which gives us the idea that it, it has something to do with that class of people we call the Jews. It was being written to them because there was a great problem, really, that was going on for some of these people. 
That problem was being caused by the fact that they were living during a time frame when God's economy was making a huge change. We might call it a dispensational change. We might call it a change in which God, in the way in which God was going to create arrangements for now interacting with his creation. It was going to be different. I hope you understand as you read the New Testament that much of what's written in the New Testament is addressing just this issue. Because this was a huge issue. Here were people who, for most of their lives, understood that their worship of God, the way they approached God, the means by which they would come in contact with God, involved a sacrificial system. I mean, I hope we can enjoy and appreciate the day and age and the time frame on God's calendar in which we live. You know what? Very few mornings do I get up and wish I had to walk out to a pen where I took care of animals. If husbandry was required of me, it would be, it would be sad for the animals that I had care over. You know what? Very, very seldom do I wake up thinking, boy, I wish I could go out and choose a, the best lamb in my flock and so I could take it to the temple and there it could be offered and sacrificed so that if I had, boy, if I had violated the law in any way, you know, that would, that would cover for that. But you know what? That's how these people generally worshiped the Lord. They had to think of things like, if you go through the Old Testament law, right? They had to think about things like, oh boy, I can't really wear that, or I can't make my garment out of those two materials because I'm not supposed to mix certain things. And they had to think about, well, I can't really, boy, it'd be great to be able to cook that thing that way, but I really can't do that because the law does says I can't do that. And, oh, no, I violated the law here, and now in order to take care of that, I'll have to take a sacrifice to, I'll have to take a sacrifice to the temple and have the priest offer it for me. You know what, that would, be a, that would have been a very cumbersome way to live. And yet, for these people who are receiving this book, this is how they probably, for most of their lives, had understood the proper worship of God. And not only that, their ancestors had worshipped this way, going all the way back to Mount Sinai. Can you begin to sense how, how long a stream of a particular movement of worship this was for them? And now, and now, since Christ has come, and now since Christ has given his life on the cross of Calvary, now we're being told that no longer do we need to do that. No longer do I have to go out to that field and gather that, that lamb. Or no longer do I have to bring that to the temple. And no longer does it need to be slaughtered. But now I can actually, I can actually bow my head and enter into the very presence of God. Folks, I hope that we can understand and put ourselves in these people's shoes. 
That would be a huge change. You see, we sit here today and we have this entire book that explains that to us. And if we want to, we can plow into any number of theologies and begin to read about what others have said this book really means. But let's put ourselves in their sandals just for a moment. That sounds kind of gross. But they didn't have shoes, I don't think. They, they were invested in this. They didn't love God any less than we love God. They didn't desire to please God any less than we desire to please God. They didn't, they didn't desire to be any less close to God than we do. Their whole, their whole life setting is built around this particular style of worship. And now they're being told, no need for that. It's all being replaced. In fact, in Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews is going to make point over and over again. Those things were but a shadow. This is the reality. Can we appreciate maybe how difficult that might have been for them to make that transition? I mean, what would the thoughts be? Okay, that sure sounds better, but I mean, we're talking we're talking years of history. We're talking we're talking patterns that have become totally ingrained in my approach to the Lord. We're talking about promises that that how can I be sure that by the way, how can I even be sure that this one who is the Messiah, how can I even be sure that he's true? Because he was actually hung on a cross by the Romans. There's a lot of danger for them. There's a lot of discouragement, I can sense, for them. There was some danger involved in the fact that, that they could be ostracized and maybe even pushed out by their families. And even in the rest of chapter 10 and into chapter 11, we read about some of the potential difficulties that these people might have faced making this choice. And so some of them were thinking about turning back. Some of them were thinking about Going back to those old ways. Because after all, it's been going on for a long time. And after all, this change, not necessarily what we were anticipating. And so they were thinking of going back. And the writer of the Hebrews is writing to them and saying to them, hey, don't turn back. Understand that what you are moving towards is better. That's one of the key words in the book of Hebrews, right? It's better. It's better than the old way. Accept the new way because it is better. And in fact, because it's so much better, draw nigh to God. Draw nigh to him. Hold fast to the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. And besides that, don't just do that as individuals. Understand the community needs that help and consider one another how to provoke unto good works. 
You know what? When we read this passage in light of that broader context, you know what I begin to see? I begin to see that there is an urgency here about what these people were doing. They weren't just lagging in their Christian fervor. They weren't just lagging in their relationship with God. They were actually making what would be a life-threatening situation to go back to the old ways which were passing away, and as the writer of the Hebrews is going to say, had no hope of clearing their consciences. And so the writer says to them urgently, with passion, with conviction, draw nigh to God. Because the way has been opened. Hold fast to the promises because they're being made by a God who cannot lie. And you know what? Stir up one another to love and to good works. This is not, this is not just an application that I can easily draw sitting in my living room about my need to, to maybe warm my heart towards God. This is a passionate plea to draw nigh to him. This is a passionate plea to hold fast to the promises and to stir one another up unto love and to good works. That's the broad view of this passage. So what's the other way we could, the other reading we need to give to this in order to understand this passage theologically? Well, this set of verses, 19 through 25, also sits, in a context that is more narrow. Yes, it's part of a book and it contributes to the overall message of the book, but you know what else? It sits within an argument, a particular argument that the writer of the Hebrews is making. In fact, that argument begins in chapter 7, works its way through chapter 8, chapter 9, most of chapter 10 until we get to verse 19 where he begins to then sum things up and to draw this application. So what is the argument then that the writer is making here in this narrow sense of the context of this passage? Well, this is really cool because this is a great section of scripture in this book. And so what the writer of the Hebrews is going to do is say to these people, listen, You may be sitting there thinking, "Okay, you're writing a book about the fact that the new way is better than the old way, but. What makes it better? The writer of the Hebrews takes up in these four chapters an answer to that question. What does make this new way better? And the very thing he's going to do in these chapters is he's going to take the he's going to take the old priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, And he's going to compare that to now the new priesthood of Jesus Christ. He's going to compare the two. He's going to do it mainly by contrast. And what he's going to be, what what his desire is to show is that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is superior to the Aaronic priesthood. Now, we obviously don't have time to walk through all of these chapters, but I do want to take you through these four chapters and give you a little bit of sense of how the writer goes about doing this. So if you turn over to chapter seven, I want you to see the first thing that that the writer is going to point out is this, that the nature of Christ's priesthood is superior. The nature of his priesthood is superior. This chapter is interesting. It'd be fun to spend some time in, but um, not this morning. 
In the first part of this chapter, we meet a figure from the Old Testament. His name is Melchizedek. Not very much is said about, about Melchizedek. A couple things. His name interpreted means king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, which means king of peace. The interesting thing about this, this character is that the writer gives us no information with regards to his genealogy. We don't know anything about his mother and father. We know nothing about his priesthood because he's called a priest of the Most High God. And we know nothing about his priesthood. We don't know when it began. We don't know when it ends. He's just a figure that appears on the scene. Abraham honors him as a great man by giving him spoils from the battle that he's just come back from. And boom, he's off the scene. And then the next thing we really hear about him is in the 110th Psalm when David says of, of, uh, in, a, in a prophecy of Jesus Christ that he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But what is interesting, and, and so the writer of the Hebrews is, is relaying that information to us, and then he, then he takes some time to compare the Aaronic priesthood with Christ's priesthood, whose priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek, and he draws two conclusions about it regarding the nature of Christ's priesthood. Look down at verse 23. And so he makes this, this, uh, this comment. He says, the former priests were many in number, because they were pre prevented by death from continuing in office. So what that is simply saying is that under the old priesthood, there had to be a lot of those guys because they couldn't continue forever in their priesthood because they, they died. Okay? They, they passed off the scene, and when they passed off the scene, someone new had to come on the scene. But then look in verse 24, and here's where we see the contrast being made. So the, uh, the author goes on to say, but, but he, speaking of Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to, the, uh, to, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is better about Christ's priesthood than the Aaronic priesthood? <laughs> Their priesthood was temporary, incomplete. They could never bring those whom they service to a state of completion because before they could do that, they died off. But Jesus Christ, the Bible says, holds his priesthood permanently. Praise the Lord for that. The salvation we have in Christ is built on a permanent priesthood priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love what he says in this passage. He's able to save to the uttermost. That means that regardless of any situation, what, what the circumstances are in our lives, because he lives forever, because he is a permanent priest, he can see us through to the very end. And then he makes this comment, which I think is really great for all of us, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What a tremendous promise that Jesus Christ, our great high priest, ever lives. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. Why can he bring this salvation that he's provided for us? Why can he bring us to a completeness in that? Because he is himself permanent. I was thinking about this passage a little bit, and I was thinking, well, permanency is good, but we live in a day when we, we have term limits. Uh, 
you know, we're, we're moving guys in and out of office pretty quickly. And, and uh, sometimes, depending on who's in office, we might think, boy, I'm sure I'm glad that that's not a permanent position. But you know what? It seems to me the writer follows that question up and that idea, because look at what he says in verse 26. He says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later, the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Why is it not fearful to understand Jesus Christ as a permanent high priest? Because he is a pure high priest. Because he's of the highest character. So what makes this new way better than the old way? Why should I draw near? Why should I hold fast? Why should I consider one another to stir up to love and good works? First of all, because of the nature of this priesthood. It is built on permanency and it is built on purity. And secondly, the writer goes in and continues on in chapter 8. In chapter 8, we learn something about the provision of his priesthood. And what the writer is trying to say here is that the provision of this priesthood is superior to that of the old priesthood. In fact, if you look with me beginning in verse 3, I want you to see something. So it says here, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Interesting statement. So what he's basically saying is, hey, every high priest is a high priest because he has something to offer. He has gifts or sacrifices. And they serve a, they serve an arrangement. They serve as an arrangement in order to draw near to God. And this is the arrangement. And so, so every, every high priest has that. And he goes on to say, and, and thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. But then in verse four, he makes this interesting statement. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So what he, he's, saying, listen, if, if this high priest of this new order were here on earth, he, he really wouldn't, there'd be no need for him because we have a sacrificial system already in place. But then he says down in verse six, but as it is, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So the writer says he does have something to offer. He has something better. And it's, a, it's better because it's based on a new covenant. And then the writer is going to go over to Jeremiah chapter 31 and he's going to pull out there where the Bible describes this new covenant and he's going to place it right here in his argument. These folks are offering these Old Testament sacrifices, but he has something better to offer. It is based on the new covenant. And the focus of that new covenant we find in verse 12, where 
Jeremiah is quoted as saying, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Folks, under this old system, part of the problem with this old system was it could never deal with the sin problem. It could only deal with the outward elements of those things. It could never really deal with the sin problem itself. And so the writer says, listen, folks, this this is better because the provision that this priest makes is better than the provision that was made by in the old ways because it's based on a better covenant, a new covenant, a new covenant based on the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 9, to follow up quickly on the heels of that, in chapter 9, the writer moves to the fact that this, this sacrifice, this priesthood is better because of the extent of his priesthood. And this is really an interesting uh, section as well. I want you to look with me beginning in verse 11. It says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And I want you to notice what that really means. Look at verse 13. So the writer goes on to say, for if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. You see what he's doing? He's setting up an argument here, right? So he's going to make this point. Listen, these priests, they, they're in their daily ministrations in the temple. They're going in and out of the holy place. And they're offering sacrifices and they're, they're putting out the showbread and they're lighting the candle Uh, And they're doing all of this work. And and even once a year, they're actually going, the high priest is going into the the Holy of Holies place where no one else is allowed to go. And, and, uh, and, And yet he's taking blood to sprinkle for himself and for the sins of the people. And they're going through all of this and he's gonna, he's gonna make this allowance. Okay? Really smart. He's gonna make an allowance with them. So he says, for if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls with the ashes of heifer sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. In other words, if it can at least do that, right? Then he says in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? Is that not better? Is that not superior? If all I could get from the old ways was actually a cleansing from my outward violation of the law, if that's really all I could do, and the writer says that is what you were getting, is it not better to have a sacrifice by a high priest which sacrifice purifies our conscience from dead works? It goes to the very heart of the issue. Folks, this is why life under Christ is better than life under the Old Testament sacrificial setup. Because through Christ, we have a cleansing not only of our outer man, but we have a very cleansing of our inward man. And not only does it take away or remove dead works, 
purify our conscience from dead works, but we are now set to serve the living God. This is better. So the extent of his priesthood is superior. And that that brings us to chapter 10, which we read this morning. And in chapter 10, I think the argument is simply this. How is this better? How is this superior? It's better because the offering of his priesthood is superior. What he offers, it's better. Go to verse 11. I want to just look at this for a moment. Again, the writer is going to make a contrast between the old way and the new way. Here's what he says in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Can we slow down? Just just think about that verse for a minute. Look at what he look at the words. Every priest. Every Stands. Standing is the position normally known as ongoing effort. When someone is done with something, they sit down. When they're still in the midst of it, it's a standing position. And so every priest stands, and look at what he says, daily. Are you starting to pick up on where he's going with this? He stands daily at his service, offering... Okay, okay, I get it. Repeatedly. But wait, I'm not done. Repeatedly the same sacrifices. And then just to put it in as a last little punch, by the way, this stuff that's done standing daily, repeatedly, the same sacrifices by every priest, it can never take away sin. I think we're supposed to pause there a moment and feel the, feel the routine of that. Feel, in a sense, the hopelessness of that. This is, what they, this is what they banked on. This is what they gave themselves to. And it was done daily, repeatedly, the same sacrifices, and they could never take away sin. And I love this transition, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. What could be more contrasting? What could be more opposite? Folks, we are, the, we are the inheritors of a sacrifice made one time by Christ that forgives all sin for all time. He will, he will never stand again in the sense of having to provide that. He has sat down and now is waiting until all things are consummated under his rule. What could be better? And so the writer says to these people, listen, Christ's priesthood is superior in nature. It is superior in its provision. It is superior in its extent. And it is superior in its offering. How in the world could you think about going back 
when all the blessing and all the promise is in going forward into the new. And now, the, now he comes to the text that we're considering. And so what? Well, the so what is draw near to God. It's all provided. Hold fast to the promises because he's sitting, waiting until the consummation of all that he has promised. And then, folks, do it as a community of believers. Consider one another to stir one another up unto love and good works. It is better. It is far better. Praise God that we live in this day and age and know Christ in this way. Let's pray.